Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to episode 50 of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and I couldn't be more excited. Um, probably by the time we get to episode 100, that's when we'll do some sort of major celebration. Uh, but episode 50 is a pretty huge milestone, since when I started this, I didn't know if we'd make it to episode 2. <laughs> so I uh, couldn't be more thrilled with the result, and I hope you're enjoying it as well. Um, I remain grateful to everyone who listens, who talks about it on social media. If uh, you've left a review, I so greatly appreciate that. Let your friends know that any other writers you know out there who might uh, also be looking for information on writing and publishing, who might want to hear these amazing conversations uh, that we're having every week, let them know that this is happening. Um, so I want to want to make this available for free to as many people as possible. Um, I don't know where the show is going. I wish I could tell you I had a firm, concrete plan that episode 200 and then that'll be it. I don't know. Um, if uh, for some reason the show went away tomorrow, I would be very grateful for the incredible conversations we've had thus far. Uh, and for all of that, I know I've learned and I hope you've learned something listening to these authors and publishing professionals share with us every week. Um, to keep tabs on what's coming up with the show, find out who our future guests are going to be, check out the archives for those first 49 episodes prior to this, plus a couple of bonus features, head to middlegradeninja.com. Uh, while you're there, you can't help but miss that I've got a book. It's called Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It is an 11-year-old biracial boy, detective uh, genius, inventor of robots, uh, who fights giant robot bees with an EMP blast rifle while riding around on a jetpack. It's an amazing story. I'm a huge fan. Uh, you can get it as a paperback, an audiobook, or the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, once you're hooked on the series, check out the sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the upcoming third it's still yet to be revealed. Uh, Banneker Bones Adventure. One of these days, I'm just going to let it slip. Not this day. Maybe maybe episode 100. <laughs> uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written uh, the young adult novel, All Together Now, a zombie story, as well as The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel uh, about an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions. Um, it's for adults only, but if you are an adult and you're curious to see me do my Stephen King impersonation, check out the Book of David. Chapter one uh, is available to download for free as an ebook whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. And that's it. Episode 50. Here we go. Let's get started. Today I'm chatting with Mariama Lockington. Uh, Mariama, how are you today? I am doing really well, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. I was excited to be on. Thank you very much for uh, making the time. I am thrilled to chat with you, and I'm so glad you're our uh, guest for 50 because I'm expecting huge things. I know this is, I, I don't want to jinx it, but I think this is going to be our best episode ever. So. Okay. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure whatsoever. Okay. Um, so let's start with, if, if you don't mind, I'm terrible with uh, other people's biographies and other yep. people's books. Uh, so if you would just tell esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of your background. Yeah. Um, so I am an author and also an educator. Um, and I have a novel, a middle grade novel that just came out in July called For Black Girls Like Me. Um, I grew up a little bit of everywhere, um, but I currently live in Lexington, Kentucky. So when I talk with young people about what they know about Kentucky, 
usually the first thing they say is fried chicken, but then some people do get uh, that we have a big horse industry here, um, big, you know, Kentucky Derby races, the place, uh, the state, home state of Muhammad Ali. And so um, it's fun to sort of talk to young people about all the different places that I've traveled to and lived in. I've lived in seven different states, um, both as a kid and as an adult. So that's a fun, fun thing. And um, I've been writing for a really long time, but I've also um, been working sort of in education nonprofits, um, working to support teachers um, and students in sort of out of school time. And so those are my big two passions is writing and storytelling uh, for young people, um, for adults. I write poetry as well. Um, and then also working with young people in educational spaces. So, Gotcha. So lots to unpack there. It's a, it's a heck of an impressive resume. <laughs> um, what, uh, what kind of out-of-school teaching, what does that entail? Yeah, so um, I started out my sort of education career working for an organization called Citizen Schools, which um, is a program that's um, similar to like a Teach for America. I got a teaching fellowship and I, after I graduated from the University of Michigan, I went out to uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and basically what I did is during the school day, I was assigned a school, a middle school, and I worked um, with the teachers um, to support specific students during the school day that were then going to be coming to our after school program. And then after school, I ran a classroom of students, both helping them with homework. Um, and then we did um, something called apprenticeships. So volunteers would come in and want to teach something that they were an expert on. So wanting to teach an art class or I, I helped a volunteer come up with a curriculum for etiquette because she really wanted to teach young people about etiquette um, or financial planning. And so my job then was to work with volunteers to come up with a curriculum uh, to sort of teach to middle school students um, about those different things. And so it was both a program that was doing, um, you know, practical homework help and then also getting young people to think about future careers and future passions that they might have in the world. Um, and that's sort of how I got started. Um, and then when uh, I was done with my fellowship, it was a two-year fellowship, I found an organization called um, 826 National, um, which was actually started by an author, Dave Eggers, and an educator, Nineveh Caligari, out in San Francisco. And it's a network of at the time, it was six or seven. I think they've expanded now writing and tutoring centers all across the country um, that specifically focused on getting young people to write creatively, also helping them, you know, with their academic writing. And then also my favorite thing was actually publishing young people in professionally bound works um, that designers, you know, designed, editors edited, and then the books um, were sort of sold um, in the writing centers and in stores in the different cities. And so um, I had the pleasure of working for that organization for seven years and getting to do a lot of in-schools publishing projects with young people um, and help them become published authors before they even graduated middle or high school. So. Can I get a time machine for you to come back to me <laughs> when I was in middle school and high school to help me do that? That sounds amazing. Yeah, me too. I would have I would have loved a program like that. And it really was some of my biggest joy was like watching those books get put together and then watching young people understand that we were going to actually have like a book release party and they were going to get to sort of read from their books and then um, have their parents or family members and community members come and like get a copy of the book and actually sign sign a book as an author. So I feel like um, I got I got to watch young people signing books before I ever had to do it myself. <laughs> um, and that's a really cool thing. 
what uh, I've got all kinds of questions for you, but what did working with young people, the target audience for your your book for Black Girls Like Me, I assume, uh, at yeah. least a big part of it. Um, what did working with those people, uh, young people uh, on publishing and helping them write and learn to do that, teach you about writing and bring to your work? Yeah, that's that's such a good question. I, I, I've always known that I wanted to be a writer myself and be a storyteller and pursue publishing. But I've also always known that um, that I needed to not be, you know, I think writing can be sometimes very solitary, which you need in order to get the work done. But I also knew that I needed another passion in my life that would bring me out into the community and make sure that I was interacting and talking and learning from others. I'm definitely a, a nerd, a lifelong learner. I love school. <laughs> Talk about more about that later. Um and I love books and I love school and I love storytelling and I, I liked being in the classroom when I was a young person. And so becoming an adult and finding myself working with young people just seemed sort of like a natural move. Um, what I love about writing for middle grade, um, I also, I mean, I love working with high school students too, but middle grade and middle school is actually my favorite um, sort of place to live is that I think that what I've learned from from that, that age group is that there's this unfilteredness um, and... <laughs> Um, young people have not yet gotten worried necessarily about if they're saying the right thing, um, but they just have a ton of questions. And yeah, sometimes they blurt out things that, you know, you have to have a conversation about why, why did you hear that and why do you believe that? But they're still forming their identities, but they're also really honest and really truthful with you. And so um, I think that I've learned sort of that from from working with young people is sort of that just like curiosity and that wonder that I think exists at that specific age. And yes, it's awkward um, and sometimes a little bit smelly and, you know, people are trying to figure out their feelings and their bodies. But um, I just I, I really love that sort of wonder and curiosity and magic of that age. Um, and I think it reminds me as an adult not to take things so seriously and then also um, not to be so afraid of things that I don't know that I'm still trying to figure out. And I think young people, um, specifically middle schoolers, can really teach teach us a lot about the world um, and a lot about resilience, too. I think my book is a book that, um, you know, is a book about a, a young girl who is uh, black and adopted. And so she's growing up in a white family. Um, and there is a lot of joy and hope and fun in the book. But there's also some, like, tough subjects as well. Um, and I think that young people can handle more than we think they can sometimes. And if you spend time with them, um, talking with them, I think that that becomes apparent. Yeah, no, that uh, makes complete sense. Um, I love that, uh, that, that the young kids will blurt things out uh, <laughs> that are unfiltered. Because uh, even when it's a terrible thing that you shouldn't say, they don't know that you shouldn't say it most yeah. of the time. Uh, and it's one, it's a learning opportunity for them, whereas adults still think those things are just better at hiding it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it's a moment for a, a learning, con you know, a learning moment. That's just a follow up question about, well, why are you saying that thing? If it's something, you know, that someone has blurted out that's problematic, you know, it's an opportunity for growth and for a conversation about where that came from. And I don't think we do that as much as adults. I think, you know, when someone says the wrong thing, we sort of tense up and, you know, people get defensive or, you know, all these things happen. And I think with young people, there's, um, you know, there's a little bit more room for us to have a conversation and sort of get to the bottom and the root of where that's coming from. And you're, um, 
Well, I'm going to say you're, you're going to be prompting some difficult conversations, I imagine, with uh, for black girls like me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we will backtrack because I want to ask you about your 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 nerdiness, as you say, yeah. uh, and your love for uh, higher, higher education. Um, well, let me ask you about that real fast, and then let's talk for black girls like me. Okay. Uh, but I was uh, astonished to see that you've got a, both a master's in education and a master's of fine arts. Yeah. Uh, and I assume you're still studying uh, in addition to everything else that you're doing, probably just for fun. Because uh, <laughs> I, I assume that, it, uh, that at that point it becomes almost an addiction where you've got to <laughs> keep learning and studying something. Um, so what, uh, how did that come about that you, that you were mastering in both of those things? Yeah, I think, um, so as a kid, I actually, um, I've experienced all different types of like learning communities and learning structures. So, um, I went to a Montessori preschool when I was growing up and then I also, um, went to uh, a Montessori high school. I was homeschooled for a little bit of a time and then I graduated from a boarding school. Um, and so I've had all these examples in my life of different ways that learning can happen both inside of a classroom and outside of a classroom. I personally, homeschooling was not my favorite because I do like um, the community that comes with being you know, at a school. Um, and I liked sort of the you know, I liked the, I, I'm a Capricorn. I liked the sort of uh, <laughs> consistency of like having a desk and having, you know, your, a teacher tell you what what is going to happen for the day. I liked those things. Um, but in general, yeah, I've always just been someone who's been really interested in learning. Um, and for me, reading was something um, that is something that I do voraciously now and that I came to uh Storytelling was something that I loved to do growing up, but I was a little bit of a slow reader at first. Um, and once I really sort of hooked on to reading, I read widely. I read definitely out of my like middle grade bracket. Probably I read some adult books, some Toni Morrison, much too early in life. Um, How early? <laughs> um, I would say that I, I I feel like I found the bluest eye when I was like twelve or thirteen. Which you know, I mean, I was a you know, middle school, middle schooler, but The Bluest Eye is a pretty tough book in a lot of ways. Um, and so when I when I say that it sort of went over my head in some ways, I think that Toni Morrison's like language and there were some things I just didn't maybe get initially from from reading the book at that time. And then I sort of went back to Toni Morrison when I got to college um, and maybe a little bit in high school, but mostly when I got to college. And that's also when I started to sort of like reread um, and devour her words um, and learn something new from them every time. So, yeah. Um, but um, the question about school and learning. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I pursued poetry as my first love. And so um, I always was doing poetry and writing um, in college um, and in high school, I was doing those things. And then I um, also knew I wanted to teach. And so after college, it just seemed like a natural transition to go into working with young people in a capacity while also pursuing uh, sort of my creative efforts. And um, both of those things have really shaped sort of how I think about writing, how I think about the world today. And I'm not in school anymore, but as an author, I find myself in schools all the time for school visits, which have been really, really fun. Um, and also in my nonprofit work, I've just found myself working with middle schoolers and high schoolers a lot as well. 
there's some author, and I, I can't remember who said it, I would absolutely credit them, uh, <laughs> but said that being an author is like signing up to have homework every night forever. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very prescient. <laughs> yes, that is a little, that is true. That is true. I feel like you're doing homework about people that you are talking to. You're doing research and homework, maybe for the books you're writing. Um and then just, you know, making sure that when you go into a school, you have it together and that you're talking about things that are meaningful um, and engaging for young people as well. So uh, let me back up just a little bit, because you said you were a slow reader and then that began to finally turn around to where you were able to tackle the bluest eye, uh, <laughs> which is an extremely complex book for, for a 12 year old. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I was uh, reading uh, Stephen King about that same age. Not that yeah. the complexity of language is the same, uh, but certainly the content yes, yes. <laughs> is comparable. Um, what uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. Well, I guess I would have been about 13 when I read The Color Purple. Uh, yeah. That has some very much uh, uh, some adult content. So mm -hmm. um, when did that turn around for you? And do you remember what the process was? Because anytime I talked to somebody who was a slow reader, who's now gone on to become an author uh, and a, a very prolific reader, uh, I know that all the librarians and teachers uh, who are listening are, are leaning in close saying, how? How can we get uh, students to be uh, future Mariama Lockington? <laughs> well, <laughs> So I think, you know, I mean, I think what happened was just letting me self-select. So I think, um, so my, my mother actually pulled me out of a school in second grade. Um, and my sister, who's a couple years younger than me, was in uh, kindergarten at the time. Um, and she felt like I wasn't really learning. I wasn't really reading where I should be. Um, and homeschooling seemed like a really good option for us. Um, and so she started taking us to the library. And she at first didn't sort of like force any books on us. She just sort of let us wander. Um, and I think out of some boredom a little bit, I started reading series that looked interesting to me. Um, they were not necessarily the books that I think my mom wanted me to read, but um, I got super hooked on like the Sweet Valley High series um, and Boxcar Children and Babysitter's Club um, and just started reading those voraciously um, at the library um, and being really into those. I also loved, you know, Ramona, uh, the Ramona series and, and those books growing up, too. And so those were the books that I sort of started reading. And um, and then my <laughs> and then I think my mom, you know, had her opinions about those those series. And so she started to just like slip different classics into my room. And she really I mean, really wanted me to read The Hobbit, really wanted me to read um uh, you know, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, different books like that. Um, I remember like Jane Eyre appeared in my room one day when I was a little bit older, just like leaving me other books that she thought I should read. And so, um, you know, eventually I found myself to some other texts and I found Toni Morrison. But I think when I found Toni Morrison, when I found The Blue Eye, it was the first time that I had like seen a book with a black girl so prominently on the cover and then also the content, even though some of it was going over my head, this idea of being a little black girl um, trying to love herself and trying to understand her beauty in terms of sort of bigger societal pressure as well. Did your uh, mother read to you when you were young? She did, yeah. So um, she did read aloud to us and so did my dad as well. Um, so some of the series I definitely remember sort of us reading as a family were the Little House on the Prairie series. Um, I think she probably, I think we did read some Chronicles of Narnia. I wasn't a big um, uh, fantasy 
reader. I really wanted to read stories about girls or young people like me. My sister was more into like Redwall and Chronicles of Narnia and all those things. Um, I was definitely, I want to read about like real girls in history going through real things, real young people going through hard times. So I loved like, I loved Hatchet. I loved My Side of the Mountain. Um, I loved the Dear America. There were these Dear America diary series um, that were actually historical. So they were about um, you know, young girls um, in specific times in history. And then they were hardback and then they were all formatted as diaries. And so they were both historical and then also about young young girls. And I think there's also, um, there was also a, a series that was a companion series that also featured young young boys in history as well. And so I really loved those stories. And that's sort of where I gravitated to, whereas my sister was a little bit um, more into sort of fantasy and um, and those worlds as well. Um, so my mom did read read aloud to us. And I think that that was also important for just my love of storytelling in general. Like I, I think reading was hard, like was a struggle at first, but it wasn't because I wasn't interested in stories. Um, and I think being able to self-select and then also just getting a little bored. Um, and I grew up in a family that we didn't watch a lot of TV. Um, and so. Were there restrictions on the amount of time you were allowed to watch TV? Uh, restrictions. And like, we just, we never had, we really weren't a family that had cable and we weren't, you know, my mom was like, go outside and play, read a book type of a person. So, so video yeah. games. No, I am. I definitely sometimes still feel clueless with video games and not play up, grow up playing video games um, and computer games sometimes. But no, I was definitely a very much like a you read, go outside, have an adventure type of a household growing up. Well, it sounds ideal. That's how you create future authors. Yeah. <laughs> So I hope I hope mom gets thanked in the back of the book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then um, I wanted to follow that up with what author? I assume Toni Morrison is a huge um, uh, influence on your work. Are there other authors that you might identify as well? This, I feel like this question is always the question, and then all of them go out of my head instantly when someone asks this. I mean, Toni, yeah, Toni Morrison is a big influence. Um, I. I would also say that there are a lot of poets that that influenced me growing up and so growing up and then into sort of adulthood, um, young adulthood. Um, so I loved uh, I loved Maya Angelou. I loved uh, Nikki Giovanni. And um, I also in high school found a recording of the, the spoken word poet um, artist Saul Williams. Um, and that was the first time I had heard um, someone do sort of more performative poetry. Um, and I was obsessed with him and with that type of style and then spent my entire senior year of high school writing very bad uh, imitations of that particular type of poem. But I but that idea of getting up and, and sort of um, telling a story, memorizing a poem, putting it to music um, really, really struck a chord with me. And so that's sort of how I got into sort of more performative uh, poetry and writing when I went into college. Uh, I was doing it a little bit in high school, but then really found sort of my, my people and my community in college as far as spoken word and slam poetry. Um, and then I love, um, I love Octavia Butler, um, who wrote Parable of the Talents and Parable of the Sower, who's a Black woman who was writing science fiction. Um, I love her work, and she really influences me. Um, and Zora Neale Hurston, Their Eyes Were Watching God, is also in one of my like top top 
five top three books. So, so not well. I guess uh, Octavia Butler has some uh, definitely some fantastical elements, but a lot of uh, very very serious heady stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that you're reading. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I know in stalking you online, I found that the first thing you wrote was in second grade. Um, when did you go from uh, <laughs> wanting to write slam poetry and and fun things to knowing that you wanted to write actual fiction uh, and and pursue specific books for young adults, or is that what you want to do? Yeah, I, um, so even though it, I am very happy to be in the middle grade space now, and it makes total sense that I'm here and I plan to be here for a while, I did not in my mind ever think about actually writing for young people as I was growing up. Um, writing initially or storytelling was actually just a means for survival for me. So, you know, I, I'm listing all these sort of heady, serious inspirations. But for me, when I was growing up, um, because, you know, we can talk about this a little bit later, but because I'm also adopted and I grew up in a white family. And so um, this book is inspired by some some of my experiences and emotional things that I went through growing up. But for me, growing up, writing began, became a way to, like, put down some feelings I had and some questions I had about um, you know, my experience in the world compared to my parents or my other family members. And so I kept meticulous journals and diaries, um, some of them observing the world around me, some of them sort of all about my internal sort of turmoil and questions about my family versus, you know, what about a family that I came from? Um, and so for a while, that was what writing was for me. Um, I think in high school, it shifted into this is something that I want to pursue and a craft that I want to work on. And for me, that was through poetry. Um, so I mentioned that I went to a boarding school. Um, I had the opportunity my senior year of high school to go to Interlochen Arts Academy, which is a arts camp and boarding school in northern Michigan. And when you go there as, a, as an academy student, you pick a major. Um, and so I had gone for summer camp as a musician because my family is musical. Um, and music taught me a lot about like how you practice something to get good at it. <laughs> but writing really was the thing that I was like, I love doing this. I want to continue to do this and get better at it. So when I went for my senior year, I actually went as a creative writing major um, and then put together a poetry thesis as a high school student um, to graduate from that program. And so it was really that point where I was like, well, that's what I want to pursue. I want to be a poet. Um, I want to write poetry. I want to publish books. Um, I still love reading fiction. I love nonfiction, uh, but that sort of became the focus. And then I went into college and I found the slam poetry spoken word community scene there. I was on University of Michigan's like national slam team for two years and went to nationals and competed with other dramatic college students. Um, all of us writing very raw poetry about our lives and our experiences um, and then, you know, after college, I was like, all right, I know I want to teach, but I also want to continue to pursue writing. And so I did, I pursued my master's in education, but was always finding ways to still be performing or writing, or I had a lot of friends who were writers, so be sharing work with each other. Um, and so this book for Black Girls Like Me actually technically started as my master's thesis and was actually a collection of poetry. Um, that was much more abstract and um, played around with form a lot more, but it was a collection of poems all in the voice of this 11 year old girl. And it was much more autobiographical than this book is. Um, 
but I graduated from my MFA program with, you know, a 60 page poetry thesis um, that was about a girl who was adopted. And so there were these little vignettes of poems that kept coming back. Um, and then I sort of struggled to figure out what to do with that or who I, you know, how I was going to be a writer in the world after that program. Um, but I published an essay about my experiences growing up as an adoptee in BuzzFeed. And from that essay, I got an email from my now editor asking if I considered writing a story inspired by my own story with a young black girl who was adopted as a protagonist. And that is how I ended up in the kid lit in the you know middle grade space um, because once it sort of clicked with me that I could maybe take sort of the bones of this poetry manuscript, I was like, well, I've been writing about this 11 year old girl forever and sort of then change it, um, you know, make it more plot driven, um, you know, think more about the characters, um, fictionalize it. That That is what became for black girls like me. Um, and I was definitely feeling stagnant with the previous manuscript and didn't know what to do and sort of when this became a path forward. It was really, really fun and rewarding to sort of jump into writing this for a middle grade perspective. That's a very long answer. To no, it was a great answer. I'm <laughs> um, just trying to think of all the follow up questions I have. One, I, I can't let pass because just a dumb question uh, to sit to satiate my own ignorance. Um, how does one compete in slam poetry and how do you know who's won? Haven't we all won if we all get to hear great poetry? This is a great <laughs> this is a great question. Um, Obviously, it's very subjective, um, but there is there is a form to slam poetry. So basically, if you are competing in a slam, you enter, you put your name down um, and then you have three minutes to deliver uh, a poem. You're not allowed to use props. Um, you don't have to memorize it, but you should. Um, you should be sort of like off script um, because when you're reading off of a paper that takes away from your performance a little bit. And um, and then honestly, the way a poetry slam is judged is people from the audience volunteer to be a judge. Um, and then you get a score um, and your score is, what is it, zero through 10. Um, if the person running the slam is a kind person, they instruct people that you should never give anyone like less than a, a five. Like that's, you should never do that, but sometimes people would. Um, and then, you know, after you do your poem, you get a score. Um, and I think there are five judges or so. And so maybe three or five, I can't remember, depending on how it's being run. And so you get your score um, and then there are two rounds. So if you make it through the first round, then you can repeat a poem in the second round. Um, so the judging is there on the spot, often by just audience members, some who may have come there specifically to see a slam, some who just might be in the establishment that the slam is happening in. Um, and then for for like the national ones, ones that are a little bit more um, like we're, you know, just like a college, I don't know, college football team is going to play another team where you're taking your slam team to another institution to compete against other colleges. Uh, sometimes they bring in like poets or authors from the areas to be the judges for those. But again, it's really subjective. You're supposed to get judged on, you know, your performance. Um, your writing, um, and then uh, the delivery and the creativity. Uh, but that can be really subjective. So in some ways, um, yeah, I guess in some ways you, you, you should feel like you all won because you're getting a chance to get up on stage and, you know, say a poem out loud. Uh, but it can get really competitive. And it's, um, it, 
it was a really important community for me growing up, um, especially in college. Some of my dearest friends still I met through going to poetry slams every Thursday night at the University Union at University of Michigan. Um, but it definitely it's hard to tell. It's like, how do you judge a poem? That's still a good question. I don't know if there's a good answer for it. Is it possible to commit a foul at a poetry slam? Yes, if you if you go past the 10 second grace period, so if you are reciting your poem, you get to that three minute mark, someone is timing you, and then you and then you have a 10 second grace period. If you go past that, then absolutely you can either you can be disqualified, honestly, if you go past the time. Um, and then if you use props, if you're using like props on stage with you to sort of convey your story or your poem, that's also kind of a foul as far as poetry goes, poetry slams go. So Carrot Top's out. He's not gonna. <laughs> he's not gonna be able to win the slam. <laughs> no. You could just, and you can also, but you can do group poems. So, um, so that you can have, you know, two or three people come up and do a piece together. It still has to be under three minutes or under. So I also had these like late nights, staying up instead of cramming for whatever exam I should probably have been cramming for. I was like writing a group piece with my friends and figuring out how to fit it all together. So it also was a lot about community as well. So uh, my experience with, I know lots of poets, my experience is rather limited to poems that rhyme and are more jokey than anything else. Because anything more than that, and oh, we're getting too close to my emotions, careful now. Um, <laughs> uh, word you off a little bit. What does uh, performing that poetry and competing with the poetry, how does that change your poetry from just sitting quietly and thinking just to yourself and, you know, maybe bearing it all. Who was it? Is it Emily Dickinson that mm -hmm. just put all the poetry away and then died and then was discovered after the fact? What's the, what, what, what's the difference of being so extroverted with your poetry and how does that improve your poetry? Um, I mean, I think there's been, a, I, I think, I don't think that there's a right necessarily way to perform or write poetry. You know, some, some poets, their poems live on the page and that is wonderful and perfectly fine. And some poetry um, is meant to be spoken and that is also valid and wonderful and it's all poetry. I think what I, what I felt when I first, you know, stumbled upon that Saul Williams poem that was like spoken out loud. Um, and then when I went to my first poetry slam at University of Michigan, what I felt was that there was, it, there was a way of inviting people in, in sort of real time that maybe doesn't, didn't happen as much when I was reading a poem on the page. And so there was a real sense of um, community. And also, even the, even if you've prepared a poem, you're not going to perform it the same way twice necessarily, right? Like each performance is in its own way, um, sort of a live performance, and it's only going to happen that way once. And so you're inviting um, a group of people in a room to sort of experience that with you. Um, and to to be in that moment with you in a, in a way that I think is different. I think you're still having a moment and an exchange when you're reading a poem on a page. That's also equally important. Um, but for me, I felt there was a lot of power in that community. Um, and then also a lot of power in standing up and um, trying to get to some type of truth with your poetry. I think the first time I went to a slam and I saw, you know, a person who was my age get up on stage and, you know, spit a poem that was talking about some like really real emotions and things that that person was going through. Um, 
something clicked to me like, oh, I can get up and I can work some things out on the mic. And I, I did. I'm also really glad that YouTube was not a thing when this was happening. <laughs> there are, <laughs> there would certainly be more film of me on YouTube <laughs> doing slam poetry if that had been a thing, but it wasn't yet. So I got you had some material you just needed to work out before yeah, you got the good I, stuff. I wrote some really dramatic, um, you know, self-portraits and I worked some things out on the mic, but I also felt like it was a space that I could do that. Um, and that there was a really, again, like a really powerful and beautiful exchange that happened. And so it was people getting up and being vulnerable um, in this way that I hadn't seen before and, and giving themselves and other people permission to be vulnerable on the mic. Um, and then also just the sort of beauty and act of oral storytelling. I think there's such power in listening to a story um, and then speaking a story as well as there is reading something on the page. And so that was really important to me. And so I, you know, I, I read some really dramatic poems of my own. I became really good friends with people. And then we, like I said, would cram and stay up all night and, you know, rewrite, do retellings of things or put our poems together. We put our poems to music and it was um, just a really, wonderful community for me to be a part of um, when you're on a big campus and you're trying to figure out who your people are as well. And obviously it didn't detract from your academic work because uh, <laughs> you stand before me today with, uh, with, with two masters. <laughs> so that it, got done as well. It did, although I definitely pushed it in some classes where it was like, you know, turn in a six page paper and instead I just <laughs> turned in a poem. <laughs> and so I definitely got called out um, by some teachers who were like, I can tell you're a really talented, you know, poet, but you need to write like an academic paper for this. So, you know, I tried. I pushed it as hard as I could in some classes. And do you still uh, compete in slam poetry? Or are you planning a triumphant return? I don't. Um, I, you know, I, I haven't. I did that a lot in, in college and then a little bit um, after college when I moved out to San Francisco, Oakland, Bay Area. Um, I think what I sort of shifted that energy into was was teaching and supporting young people who wanted to write spoken word and slam poetry. And so um, I found myself judging, you know, I, I've been a judge before um, and working with organizations like Youth Speaks um, in San Francisco, or there's an organization in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan called The Neutral Zone. Um, so sort of turning my attention to the way that slam poetry, spoken word poetry can also give a lot of power and agency to young people is sort of where I shifted that energy. Um, because as I went into grad school, I started to, for writing, I started to experiment a little more with sort of blending a bunch of different forms together. So taking what I had learned from performing on the stage, um, and then also, you know, I was taking fiction classes, nonfiction classes, and then also all my poetry classes. Some of them were about craft. Um, some of them were about producing more writing, um, about the business of writing. And so all of those things sort of like blended together. And um, I, I stopped performing, but I think that performance background has also helped me in a lot of different ways in various different jobs as I continue to work with young people and then write for young people. So you kind of become a coach, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, in some ways a coach, there you go. <laughs> well, let's talk, uh, it's, it seems almost unfair to limit this to a middle grade novel because it's also a poetry collection amongst uh, other things. So you know it better than I do. The last thing I want to do is uh, me be here talking about your book when you, Mariama Lockington, are here and can tell us all about For Black Girls Like Me. So tell us about your book and what we need to know. 
Yeah, so For Black Girls Like Me is um, a story that is a fictional story inspired by my own experiences, so an own voices story. And it is about an 11-year-old girl named Makeda who um, is adopted and growing up with uh, two white parents and an older sister who is also her parents' biological child. Um, but really, I like to start talking about this story because it's about um, it's about a friendship initially. Um, Makeda is, um, you know, has grown up in Baltimore with her best friend, Lena, who is also a black adopted girl. And they have this strong bond based on their passions, but also that they share this common experience. And when Makeda's father, um, her parents are musicians, gets a new job in a different state playing with a new symphony, Makeda has to leave behind sort of the only life she's ever known and her best friend for not only a whole new, you know, school, but a whole new landscape. So she moves from Baltimore, Maryland, all the way to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and everything is really different. Um, and while she is making this sort of, you know, physical move across the country, um, she's going through some like growing pain things. So she's dealing with a sister who's too old, doesn't want to hang out with her. She's dealing with a mother who's going through some mental health um, issues of her own and a dad who's kind of absent. And so Makeda is starting to think and wonder a little bit about, you know, how do I continue to be a part of this family and share who I am with them while I have all these questions and dreams about where I came from in the beginning? And then also while I'm trying to start over in this new place. Um, and so when Makeda's uh, transition to New Mexico and then her summer goes from sort of bad to worse when some things go down with her mom and her mom's mental health, Makeda turns to music and to sort of staying connected through letters with her friend Lena to sort of stay grounded in the world. So I like to say it's a story um, about friendship, about family. Um, it's also a story about a young girl trying to find her voice and sense of belonging. And I think that when we're young, um, no matter what our context is, we're, we're constantly questioning, do I belong here? Where do I belong? Um, who are my people? And then how do I express who I am through the identities that I am forming. And that's also what this book is a little bit about. Um, so I call it my love letter to adoptees because it's definitely a book that when I was growing up looking for books on the shelves about girls who had my same type of family, I never found those books. So in some ways um, I did the thing that I think Toni Morrison is attributed to saying, you know, if there's a story that you want to see or read in the world, you have to write that story. In some ways, that's what I did with For Black Girls Like Me. Um, but it's also a story that has so many, I think, universal themes, as well as the sort of specific context of Makeda being a Black girl adopted into a white family. So um, I'm having a lot of fun talking with young people about the ways they've seen themselves in the story, um, either directly related to Makeda's identity or, or differently as well. And I assume you're not talking exclusively to black girls that have been adopted by white families. I assume uh, yeah. that, that multiple uh, young people are able to come to this. It's a very universal tale. There's a there's a way to identify with Makeda, I think, for every reader that comes in. Um, so what are you hoping that um, people who are in that situation will, will take away from it, other than they're obviously, uh, unlike you, who went to the library and wasn't able to find this book, they're here in 2019, going to go right up to the shelf. Oh, for black girls like me. Well, perfect. Yeah. That's <laughs> that, that couldn't be more spot on. Excellent. Yeah. Um, what are you hoping that they're going to take away from the book? And what are you hoping that people who aren't in that situation but can empathize with Makeda will take away from it? Yeah. So, I mean, I hope my, my biggest hope is that um, 
young people who are adopted or growing up in multiracial families, maybe they have parents of different races or family members of different races, um, will be validated by some of the um, you know, experiences and feelings that Makeda is having in this book. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I felt a really strong responsibility to sort of get right in the book was the fact that we as humans can live with multiple feelings happening at the same time. And one feeling doesn't necessarily mean a betrayal of another feeling. And so, um, you know, as an adoptee, one of the things that's often imposed upon adoptees is this idea like you should feel so lucky all the time. You should feel so lucky that you've been given this um, quote unquote better life and that you were adopted. And and what that does, it's not that people shouldn't, we shouldn't practice gratitude in our lives, whoever we are. But what that does is sort of not acknowledge the fact that in order to become part of this family, a family that you were originally born into had to sort of fall apart, right? And so that there's a grief there as well. And so my hope is that this book for adoptees who, you know, being an adult adoptee, talking to adult adoptees where it's both things at the same time, some of us both feel lucky and a bunch of gratitude and joy for the family that we were adopted into and also feel this pain and this grief around something that we've lost, right, that we don't have access to because of our adoptions. Um, and so my hope was in this book to validate the fact that you can feel multiple things at once, at once. And so that dreaming about your biological family doesn't necessarily mean that you're betraying your family that you have grown up in. It means that you hold these two things at the same time. You belong in these two spaces. And so I, I hope that this book validates some of those feelings and wonderings for young adoptees or young people who are trying to put themselves into boxes or feel like I can't I can't look at that feeling because if I feel those feelings or acknowledge that this is over here, I might hurt these people over here. And so that's a little bit of what I, what I was hoping um, young people get away from this. Um, and then also, so for people who are not in, you know, Makeda's specific context, um, I think, again, just the understanding that um, we are human and that we feel lots of different things at once and that the only thing that we can really control is is our own our own agency and our own identities and our own feelings. And so um, I think acknowledging that sometimes really wonderful things happen alongside really hard things. Sometimes we leave friends and then we make new friends. Sometimes we are starting to find our voice and then sometimes something really terrible happens with our mom and those two things happen at the same time and it's okay to be in that sort of messy place, that messiness of growing up. Um, it's something that I really wanted to, to also validate in young people or maybe even in adults who are reading young people's literature um, that it's okay to exist in those messy places um, and and to work through those and to to be confident in ourselves as we do that. See, I don't like that. I want to exist where only good things happen. So how <laughs> can I do that, Mariama? <laughs> I need your advice to make my life constantly happy and perfect. No, nothing else. Thank you. I'm good. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 valid to also want to just exist in happiness, too, I think. Um, and I think that there are moments that Kata is existing in joy and in those moments. But, you know, there's also moments where she's not. And I like I said, I was that kid who was like looking for stories that validated the sort of complicated emotions that I was having. And so in many ways, I wrote a story that I hoped would honor those things. Um, 
And I was looking for a story that was like, yeah, sometimes really bad stuff or really hard stuff happens, even to young people um, and to our parents. And we find out that our parents are not perfect um, or that don't have all the answers, I should say. Um, and then sometimes even while that's happening, really wonderful, beautiful things are happening at the same time. And I always wanted those stories when I was growing up because that's how I felt as a kid. I felt like I was holding those two things at once. And then you discovered the secret you're not telling me to how to make sure only good things happen. <laughs> I don't know if I have that answer. I don't know. I wish. <laughs> Let me uh, let me ask you a more practical question about the structure of the book. Why is it important to set the book over a year of Kata's life? Uh, and why was it important to start from that transition from Maryland to New Mexico? I, well, so a couple of things. I think um, oftentimes books that have been written about um, the, the adoption experience have really focused on something that's called reunion. So they focused on that moment when the adopted person uh, searches for, finds, doesn't find, whatever happens, their biological family. Um, I really wanted to write a concentrated story that takes place over the year about an, a, a girl who is not at that point in her life yet because she is part of a closed adoption. So she's actually not legally allowed to search until she turns 18. And so encapsulating Kata's story, basically between, it's not even quite a year, it's almost, um, it's like three seasons, um, sort of helped concentrate that, that moment, a sort of this coming of age moment where not only this drastic transition as far as landscape is happening, but also I think so much can happen when you're a young person in the span of a year or a season or over a summer. I also really like um, summer or some a transition that happens over a summer because I think summers uh, provide really rich landscape for storytelling as well. Um, so that that felt like that felt like a good way to tell this story is, you know, what happens in these three seasons to Makeda um, and also that obviously she's still going to be experiencing throughout, but also concentrates it in this in this period of time. Um, and then, I'm sorry, the other part of the question. Uh, it was about the, just the transition from Maryland to New Mexico. Yeah, so the thing that I did steal from my life as far as the setting is Maryland, Baltimore, and New Mexico are two places, two of the many places that I've lived in my life. Um, and I think I wanted to, I wanted a, a story that started on the road, um, because I think that there's something powerful about sort of road trip stories and starting in that place of I'm not here and I'm not there, which is also sometimes how Makeda feels about her identity. She's not here and she's not there sometimes. She's sort of in the middle of everything. So starting in like the middle of the country, starting on the road felt like a good place to sort of talk about um, Makeda's identity and her story as well. Um, you got some three-dimensional chess right there. <laughs> and, then, and then New Mexico for me, I um, I just remember moving there and just a drastic, you know, how drastic the landscape was and how beautiful it was. Um, and so I wanted to set a story that sort of had that drastic change as far as landscape, uh, because I think that in some ways that's also, uh, I, I don't know if I would say it's also a character in the novel, but it also really helps to sort of um, highlight sort of Kata's sort of 
feelings of both invisibility and hypervisibility in these spaces that she's going through. And so um, it just seemed like the two good places to set it that were really drastic. And it's fun in school visits. I have a, a map where I show, you know, here's how many states Kate and her family drove through. I have a picture of sort of like the green lush dogwoods of Maryland um, and then like the Sandia Mountains and the sort of pink red desert landscape. And it's fun to watch young people sort of take that journey with Kata, um, either, you know, on the page, but then also when I'm talking through it and sort of think about a place that's different from where they are as well. So um, I think they were just two landscapes that popped out to me as well, as far as telling her story. Is that the order that you lived in them from Baltimore to, uh, to New Mexico? It is, it is, yeah. Um, so I what are the been, biggest uh, changes, biggest cultural differences that you encountered then? From that move? Um, oh my gosh, it was so long ago. I, I mean, I, I, I also remember the landscape. I mean, I, it's not that I had never been sort of west, southwest before. I grew, I grew up partially also in, in Colorado. So I spent time in Denver and in Boulder. And so, um, so it wasn't completely foreign to me, but I just remember the dryness. Um, and I think that was it. I was like the dryness of New Mexico, the cold, like I wasn't expecting how cold it what could get in the desert uh, versus, um, and, and I think for me, culturally, one of the biggest things was just, I felt a lot of, I personally felt a lot of isolation in New Mexico. Um, I think I went from more of a community of folks in uh, Baltimore um, and New Mexico for me felt a little bit more isolated personally when I was growing up there. Um, I don't know if the big cultural differences. It just, I just remember landscape and sort of this beautiful landscape and also this isolation that I was feeling at that time as well. From a person who hasn't lived there, I'm hearing, okay, The Wire versus Breaking Bad, and I'm sure it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not, because I was definitely like a, a teen or a tween there. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think I think it's interesting thing about how much landscape can like um, set a mood or change a mood. Um, and I actually I feel like I need to go back to New Mexico as an adult because there's so much beauty there that at the time when I was living there as a teen that I sort of, you know, it was like a tumultuous teenage time. And so I don't know if I fully appreciated the beauty of of that landscape. Um, it just felt like really imposing at the time. Well, I've got more questions for you about the book, but just real quick, a question about living in, in seven different states and in so many places. Um, what does that do to your perspective? Does it, do you find that people are very similar everywhere? Uh, or is just Kentucky's the best people you found and that's where you want to be? Or is that just where you are for now? I think that well, first of all, for me, I think what it has done for me is complicate the idea of home or that question, where are you from? Um, is you know, I've been I've been getting that question in general as a black person, as an adoptee for my whole life. People sort of, you know, seeing with my family and wanting to know, no, but where are you from? Like originally, like wanting me to say a different country or uh, so I've, I've, that it complicates that. But it also just complicates this idea of like, well, where are you from in the country? Um, I, 
have a hard time with that question. And so for me, home is actually cultivated in people, right? I feel a sense of home um, in certain communities with, with the people that I love. Um, and it's not necessarily about a specific place. I feel like there are lots of different places that have felt like home to me uh, based on the community I had there, based on uh, you know the formative years that I've lived there. Um, and so it, it complicates that idea. Um, I definitely think there are good people everywhere. And I don't know if Kentucky is my, you know, forever home and landing place. It's feeling really good right now. Uh, but it's, you know, it's still a place where people hear me speak and they say, you're not from here, right? Which I'm not. Um, and, or people try to place an accent and have a hard time with it. Um, and are people charming with these questions? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a complicated question. My answer is just that I found home in a lot of places. And I think even one of my bios floating around is like, you know, calls many places home because I do. Um, and, you know, Michigan is sort of a default home. I wasn't born there, but I spent formative years there. We landed there when I was in high school and I spent high school and college and a little bit after college going back there. And my family is still in Michigan. And so, um, so Michigan and, and Michigan is where I learned how to drive. I feel like that's really formative, like learning to drive in, you know, my parents' big, big suburban in the snow. Um, so and the real snow, not like we call it here in Indiana or Kentucky. No, we're talking I, high, I, higher than the vehicle you're driving in snow, right? Kentucky, when people are like, "Oh, it's gonna snow today," and I'm like, "It's ah, that's nothing. I'm not digging out my car. It's fine." And then I'm like, "Oh, maybe I, I do feel like a Michigander when I'm saying things like that." So yeah, I think in. And and I think that this is true of just my identity in general. It's like I feel like I belong in a lot of different places. I found home in a lot of different places. Um, and sometimes that's really lovely. And I, 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 I just sit in that and I'm, I'm at peace with that. And then sometimes it can be really tiring, right, to have conversations with people or people wanting to, to pinpoint or place or put me in a specific sort of box. Um, and that's just not my experience. My experience is sort of um, you know, I've lived on the West Coast, I've lived on the East Coast, I've lived in the Southwest, I'm now living in the South, um, and and I've lived in the Midwest, like I've, I've experienced all these different regions, um, and sure, some places have felt more, um, like, connect. I felt more connected to, but um, it's just given me a perspective of the ways people make their lives in multiple places of this country. So since we're we're talking quite a bit about identity and your book is uh, very much about identity, um, I think it's a fair question to put you on the spot and ask, um, do you at this point feel like you have a good sense of who Mariama J. Lockington is or is it still evolving an unanswered question that you've got a good idea, but not a definitive answer? Huh. Um, I feel pretty settled in who I am, but I also feel like when I talk to young people, I'm always talking about how you are as a person are always growing and then there's always room um, for change and for, you know, just to, to be expanding, spending yourself and your idea of yourself. And so um, I would definitely say though that I, I don't think I could have written this book if I hadn't done some work on myself and my identity. Um, and if I hadn't um, just been really um, interested in sort of grappling with some hard truths. And so I do feel at this point in my life that there are parts of me, you know, I'm, that I'm that I feel really confident in and that I'm not willing to sort of sacrifice that I, you know, you know, I'm absolutely I think 
I think as a young person um, and a young Black transracial adoptee, I had a lot of questions about what it meant to be a Black person, what it meant to be a Black woman. Um, I don't, it's not that I don't have those questions, but I I feel very confident in the Black woman that I am these days. So yes, I, my, I feel like my answer is like, yes, and. Yes, I feel like I know who I am today, but also that I'm definitely someone who's open to always learning more about who I am and what I can be and always challenging myself also to check in as well. So it's kind of a, a middle. No, that uh, makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> I don't know that I could tell you definitively who Robert Kent is as of, yeah. I tell you who I am as of today. Yeah. I can list a collection of things that happened to how I got here yeah. uh, and how I, who I feel I am. But I, I, I'm hoping that there comes a moment, maybe when you're on your deathbed, right before it, where you go, oh, that's who I was. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> the end. <laughs> and then on to the afterlife, uh, presumably to, uh, to continue to find who you are and who you're going yeah. to be. <laughs> all the big questions all the time. Um, let's see, uh, getting back to the book, uh, because I do want to tie, I really enjoyed for Black Girls Like Me, um, there's, there's something, uh, for the, uh, for the cover, uh, the publishers listing for future editions. I like this book, Robert Kent, you got it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's talk about, uh, there's a, a, a true friendship here and it's, I always joke that in middle grade, friendship is the romantic subplot. Uh, or the main romantic plot. And so uh, when you're writing about a, a friendship like Kata and Lena, um, what tips do you have for other middle grade writers that want to write this great epic friendship and to make that seem real? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, I guess my first tip would be, if it is not too traumatizing, <laughs> is to think back to a middle grade friendship that you might have had. Um, and to sort of remember, even just to sort of list or catalog the things that you remember doing with that friend or that bonded you to that person. Um, I feel like for me, um, for writing Lena and Kata, I tapped into sort of like three different friendships that I can remember from being a young person. Um, at different times as a young person, like a friendship that I had when I was actually more the age of Lena and Kata, and then a friendship I had um, in high school, and then a friendship I had a little bit into college, and to sort of um, to sort of use all of those to sort of influence and inform the way that Kata and Lena talk to each other and communicate with each other in the book. And so that for me was sort of the process for just writing that 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 friendship that that friendship romance in a way in the book and so I feel like tap, trying to tap into that um I also I mean one of the things that I've talked about a, a couple other times with this book as far as writing Lena and Kata's friendship and then just some other of the characters is hanging out hanging out around middle schoolers if you have the opportunity to um and just listening to the way they talk to one another um also can be really helpful for for getting that sort of urgency like I feel like there's it was an urgency about um best friendship um at that age um where um sort of everything revolved around that person and you sort of have like tunnel vision um about like this is what we're going to do together even if all we're going to do together is like pop popcorn and like watch this movie but also we're just going to talk about the things that happened at school this week and so um yeah I think tapping into that urgency and that memory of like 
your whole world kind of did revolve around like, yeah, you had school and yeah, you had your family and your parents, but like also like this friend that you were going to get to see and that you had this bond with in some way, shape or form. And I think, you know, I talk about this with young people, what bonds Kata and Lena is that, yeah, they share the same experience of like being two black girls who are growing up with white families. And that is important to their friendship. It is something that bonds them sort of instantly because they don't have to explain to one another like oh yeah that's my real dad you know like they they just get it um in the way that other people don't get but I also talk about with young people the fact that the other thing that bonds them is that there are people who um support each other's passions right so that Kata really loves to sing Lena's really into gymnastics and maybe they don't share you know Lena's not a singer Kata's not a gymnast but they both really support and sort of admire that in the other person. And that's also part of what makes their friendship strong. And so also thinking about the ways that those, your two characters that you're writing in this friendship, like what is the one thing that bonds them? And then what are the things around them that they're able to support in one another that also sort of propel the friendship along too? Like I love, you know, when Lena goes to visit the Museum of African-American Culture, she has very, her own priorities for that specific visit. But then she also finds something in that museum that she knows her best friend is going to like as well. Um, and so finding those moments in it, too. I don't know. I would I would want to know how I would want to ask that question of other middle grade writers. Too. <laughs> I feel like I just I honestly just was like, let me let me think about my like most epic friendships from childhood um, or young adulthood. And then just like list out the things we used to do that seem ridiculous now, but that were just like very important at that moment. And we're going to create this little world. Like we're in this little bubble, even if all we're doing is like sitting under a tree or like in a fort or in, you know, a friend's bedroom. Like it's just that, yeah, that sort of tunnel vision. Um, And it was, it was fun to, in some ways it was fun to tap into that. And I think also you have to write a friendship that's also like, also best friends then sometimes fight or like get in conflicts with each other, right? Or your friendship gets tested somehow. And so there are these moments with Kata and Lena of like, well, what's really happening over there? And these moments of like doubting the friendship too. And I think that's really true. Like one day you're like getting along great. And then the other day, like some small thing happens at school or with someone else and someone gets jealous. Like there's just, there's so much that happens and it happens in this concentrated amount of time too. So how, uh, other than the obvious obstacle, they're no longer in the the the, the same space, uh, breathing the same air. How do you create those obstacles in the friendship without uh, pushing it beyond where it's realistic that that friendship will continue beyond it? Yeah. Um, of course, when you're writing fiction, you have to create drama uh, more intense than what happened in real life. Because uh, my my mom reads my fiction. She says, "Why are why are the mothers sometimes terrible? Was that a reflection on me?" No, mom. If no. I get two characters on the page, they're going to be in conflict sooner or later. Drama has to happen. Also, uh, nobody has a great marriage in my books, but my marriage is fantastic because my marriage would be boring to read about. You wouldn't that wouldn't turn pages. <laughs> also, no one wants a perfect character. Like you have to write characters that are flaws. Like Kata is definitely a flawed person and there's some things that happen in the book that like she's responsible for in the same way that some of the you know characters in the book who are bullies are responsible for and so you have you have to write that in so I mean I don't know if I have you know the answer for that but I do think in in this book um you know Kata and Lena actually never appear 
in the same space with each other in this book. And one of the ways that I build tension between their friendship is actually through letter writing, is through correspondence. Um, and so thinking about what happens when you have to leave someone, you have to leave a best friend like that behind. And what happens when you're the person that lets behind, that is left behind. And so I spend a lot of time like thinking about like, okay, let me put myself in Lena's shoes. I'm the one that's like left behind in some ways. And I'm watching Kata like have this, even though I wish she would stay here, she's also having this adventure. She's also getting to like see a new place. She's starting a new school. And so I thought a lot about Lena being like even though Lena comes off as super confident, also thinking like, oh, well, what if she like gets a new friend in uh, New Mexico and just forgets all about me or finds someone that's cooler than me? And that's like a real fear that sometimes I feel like you have when friends leave you or they go go on. And then thinking about Kata in her shoes and thinking about, well, what does it mean to like maybe have a little bit of excitement and curiosity about, about this new place, but also being leaving behind the familiar um, and have to be the one that has to then enter into a whole new, another social aspect. Um, so I thought a lot about like, well, what would they be communicating to each other in their in their correspondence to one another? And then what are the things that they're sort of like thinking and maybe not revealing to each other right away or that will come out later? And that's a little bit how I try to play with the tension because again, they never we never get a scene in the present moment where Lena and Kata are physically in the same place. We get some scenes where they're talking, but it's all happening across a distance, which again is, you know, also why I wanted to start the book with like, you know, that road trip was like conveying the distance between her former life and her friendship and all the miles that she's traveling to get to this new place and everything that happens in between. Uh, so let's talk a, a little bit about research. Um, how much uh, research did you do for this book? Was it just your own experience? Are you talk? I mean, obviously you're talking with young people every, uh, almost every day. Um, but what research did you do specifically to create these characters beyond your own experience? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so, I mean, because it is an own voices story, and I'm writing pretty much from the perspective, like I share the perspective of my character. Um, a lot of the things that I'm writing about were sort of taken from sort of like core emotional things that happened to me growing up. So emotions that I was going through and then translating them into a specific scenario that didn't necessarily happen to me in that way, but it's about like microaggressions, right? Microaggressions that happen over the dinner table in her family or things that not even microaggressions, just like racism that happens to her when she's out in, in the world. Um, and so that stuff was not necessarily research, but sort of just thinking about how to translate my emotional experiences into like scenes as well. Um, I think where I actually did some of the most research, which is gonna, is gonna sound uh, funny. So I do come from a musical family, but um, I may be like a bad, <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna say I'm bad, but like I had to do research on some of the different classical, the musical references that are in this book. Um, some of the pieces, I spent a lot of time listening to um, different classical pieces that get referenced and remembering um, sort of the tunes and remembering the, the tones of them. Um, I did a lot of research um, on Billie Holiday because she's a character or a, a figure that comes up in in um, in the novel. And I specifically researched uh, her Carnegie Hall appearances. And so that was some research that I did. Um, and then some other research that I will also say that I did are just some 
um, research slash just making sure that I was um, uh, writing characters in compassionate ways was also that this book deals a little bit um, with mental health and specifically bipolar disorder. Um, and I am not someone living with bipolar disorder. I'm someone living with anxiety. Um, but I have many people in my life um, who are um, living with various mental illnesses or living specifically with bipolar disorder. So um, some research that I did was talking with friends and family and community members that I know, um, re reading and reading some books um, about that particular experience, um, and also talking with actually like licensed professionals to make sure I was understanding how to best um, explain what bipolar is to a young person as possibly a professional would explain it as well. So those are some avenues that I did some sort of like, you know, in person or sort of um, academic research in. Um, but a lot of it was also just taking sort of from the core of what I know emotionally to be true about growing up in this context and then fictionalizing it as far as plot and scenes, if that makes any sense. That absolutely makes sense. Did you uh, get sensitivity readers at any point or did you, um, do you employ uh, critique partners, beta readers? How do you smooth out those rough edges? Yeah. So, I mean, I 100 believe percent believe in making that's sure presumptuous of me. I have smooth, I have rough <laughs> edges that need to be smooth. Your writing might be perfect. So my that might not be necessary. My writing is not perfect. Um, I, I didn't employ necessarily a sensitivity or cultural reader, but I definitely have um, a writing group. I mean, obviously I have an editor and, you know, those people are reading my work, but I actually have a group um, of friends who are also writers and um, of various different types of genres. And we actually meet, um, well, it's been a little less lately. We've got a lot going on, but we um, try to meet um, actually over Skype, um, you know, once a month if possible, if not once a month, every couple months. Um, and we are, it's a, an accountability group. And then also sometimes we send each other each other's work. And this is a group of people who like, yes, they are my friends, but they're not, I know that they are friends who are going to tell me when something is not um, working well or when there's a big question um, and so there are people that I trust to actually give me constructive feedback and not just be like, this is amazing, because that's never helpful for a writer <laughs> to just get something that's like, everything is great, you know, like, um, and so. It's really this, pleasant, though. It might not be helpful, but it's wonderful uh, feeling. <laughs> and it comes from such a good place. But um, I think, you know, the, as a person I am, I, I don't want to hear something is, you know, perfect or great, because I always know that there's something I can work on. In fact, I have a hard time letting go of something, knowing that there's always something more that you could probably do or tweak or, or make better. Um, so yeah, so I have, I, throughout writing this book, um, I had this really strong network of, of other authors, and not even authors who were working in the middle grade space, but who were working in playwriting or write nonfiction. Um, and some of them are adoptees, and some of them are people of color, and some of them, you know, like, all these people were able to read and give me really different insights um, to sort of different holes throughout the process as well when writing this book. So um, that's always my that's always some of my advice to like a budding writer or a young person who wants to write is like to find people in your life. It doesn't have to be like a formal editor, but someone who is going to will read your work and ask honest questions that will help you then move your story along or your narrative along a little better. So having these uh, honest conversations, I've, I've got uh, 
two more questions for you, and then I, I want to ask you about school visits, and then we'll, we'll probably think about calling it a day. Um, but I want to ask you, one, I want to give you a platform to tell uh, esteemed audience what you want readers to know about transracial adoption. Um, what if, if there's a takeaway from this or multiple takeaways, what would you want them to take away? And then also, uh, being that this is not an autobiography, but similar to your situation, uh, and we're recording this in November, Thanksgiving's coming up, does that make things awkward then when you're sitting around the, the bird with the people that were in that experience with you? Or do they understand that this is your expression that you need to get out there and say these things for you? So I would say the first, so it is November and actually um, November is National Adoption Awareness Month. Um, but one thing that I would want folks to know who are not familiar with the transracial adoptee experience is that um, there are a number of us who are adults now um, who are creating work um, around uh, our unique perspectives, our experiences. And I think one of the the biggest things that I hope that I have maybe achieved with For Black Girls Like Me is I didn't want to write a narrative about adoption that's sort of what we call a fairy tale ad adoption narrative that sort of um, makes it seem like as if there's this is sort of a one dimensional experience where, you know, it's a fairy tale, a young person like finds a family and then that's it. And there's, you know, it's it's joyful all around and there's never any questioning about sort of where this child came from in the beginning. Um, and I think that um, the adoptee experience is all very different and nuanced. And some of us feel um, sort of maybe more joyful about the experience than others. But it's really nuanced, and so the biggest thing I would I would just want people to take away is to to seek out um, perspectives and narratives from adoptees about their experiences, uh, because what we see about adoption maybe on the media or on the TV or in media narratives is sometimes really one dimensional, and there are a lot of us who are writing about the nuances that are writing about the sort of yes and or living in the space of both, you know, feeling like uh, maybe we're feeling lucky or grateful or just joyful about our family and maybe we're also still grieving and thinking about where we came from in the in the first place and those things live side by side. So that's that's basically what what I want people to know um, about transracial adoption and then sitting around the dinner table and it being awkward was the second question knowing that this is based on or inspired by not based on but inspired by my life was the second one, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um I mean the the answer that I give to this is that like any family no matter you know, how your family comes together. My family is a work in progress and we are not always good at communicating with each other. So uh, Thanksgiving can be awkward and it cannot be awkward sometimes. Um, I have been writing about my identity for a long time. So in some ways it is not new um, that I've been interrogating these things. But I will also say that I was adopted um, in the 80s um, when there weren't a lot of resources available to parents who were adopting transracially about um, the challenges that might arise and the and sort of examining, you know, what it means to raise a child of color. And so um, I think there are more resources available now for families who are trying to create homes that are safe and affirming of a child of color if they themselves are not. Um, but I recognize that my parents did not have that when I was growing up. So we 
um, are still, like I said, a work in progress as far as like how we communicate about race and how we communicate about some of the harder topics that come up in for black girls like me um, or have that just have come up in our life. And so um, sometimes we are better at it than other other years. And sometimes we what what is that sketch on SNL when it's like something awkward happens at the dinner table, you just put on an Adele song and like everyone is like magically. <laughs> like, sometimes that's the situation where it's like, all right, let's just put on Adele and like agree to disagree on this one. Um, and that's, I think that's the reality of um, the transracial adoptee experience or just growing up in a multiracial family, you are not all gonna see the world or experience the world the same way. Um, and that, produces conflict sometimes, but it's okay to sit in that conflict um, and sort of work through it if that's what's happening. In my case, I'm uh, married to an African-American woman uh, and we've got, I've got a couple of relatives without saying who, who are ardent Trump supporters. Yeah. Uh, so when we sit around at the table, there's awkwardness already. All my fiction time. is the least of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, every, every family has their stuff and every family, I think in some way is a work in progress. Um, and what I really, I, what I really wanted to do with for black girls like me is just validate that Makeda can both experience absolutely racism outside of her of of her home and her family, but also because we're human and because we, um, you know, sometimes carry uh, privileges and biases that we don't intend to carry. That sometimes that happens over the dinner table too. And there are moments in for Black girls like me when her her mom or her dad or her sister says something that makes her feel othered. Um, and those are moments that I hope will sort of promote conversation versus shutting people down, um, but promote conversation in maybe families who are reading this and then maybe also provide validation to a young person who is experiencing that, that maybe doesn't have the language to understand that, oh, that's a microaggression or why that makes them feel bad. Um, but knowing that it's in a book and that it's acknowledged is, is hopefully um, maybe something that will be validating in some small way. Love the uh, running uh, image of of, uh, of Kata's hair uh, and the different ways that that creates issues for her and her family. My my wife has a shirt that says "No, you cannot touch my hair." Yeah, uh, that she wears proudly. Gonna get one of those for myself as well one day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just uh, one of those nice concrete ways you can flush out something that otherwise would be um, kind of cerebral. Uh, as opposed to, no, here's some some nice concrete examples. What other concrete examples uh, did you look for to to put clear? Uh, what am I looking for here? Um, to to make real what is otherwise a, a, a concept, as opposed to something that's that's actually happening that you could show on the page, as opposed to telling. Um, as far as the moments where Kate is feeling different or othered, is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a first-person uh, narration, so sometimes you could just flat tell us. Yeah. Uh, also, go, um, I mean, you do the thing that we would expect an excellent author to do, and you show it to us. Yeah, So yeah. For, what was the process of finding some ways in which to put this uh, concept into actual things you could show the reader? Yeah, so, I mean, I think... Um, I think one of the things that I was really interested in showing in the, the experience of Makeda, which is also often the experience of just adoptees, is the um, the feeling like you're really visible all the time because you look 
completely different than your family members, but then you're also kind of invisible at the same time because people don't see you as connected to your family members. So there's this weird, like, I'm here, but like, I'm also like not a face or not a human because I'm sort of invisible. And so um, I think a lot of the ways that I tried to show that in this book are, and, and that anxiety about do people see me, do people see me for who I am, is a lot in sort of like how Makeda holds her, her herself. Um, and then some of sort of like the anxious, nervous things that she does when she's feeling that something is off in, in her in her world or something is um, othering her or there's some gaze that she doesn't like. So there's a lot of things about like um, sitting on her hands or restricting like blood flow to parts of her hands or there's um, a lot about like her shoulders tensing or um, heat heat rising in her cheeks or things that are happening internally to her. Um, when something externally is happening that's making her feel like maybe I don't belong here or maybe they don't see me. And so those were ways that I tried to play with with that a little bit in, in the novel. Um, and then, I mean, you brought up hair. Hair is such a, hair is really loaded um, for transracial adoptees. It's loaded in general. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes black women, black people are always getting their hair touched. Like it's just, it's really loaded and it's really political. Um, and uh, black hair is really loaded and really political. Um, but specifically in families, um, adoptive families, there's a lot around like hair care um, because, you know, black hair is so different um, or can be really different from, um, from white hair. And so um, it was really actually really, really important to me. And that was actually one of the scenes that I wrote almost the last. Um, it was a hard scene for me to write, but I really wanted there to be some agency from Makeda around her own hair. And then also to interrogate that complicatedness of, of wanting hair, like a, wanting hair to be one thing, wanting her mom to not struggle with doing her hair, wanting hair like her sister, wanting to be proud of her hair, not understanding the different ways she could do her hair because she didn't have examples of it in her life. Like that whole scene was really important for me to write, but also really difficult to write because uh, I wanted to get it right. And so um, I actually, that that was actually a scene I did a lot of research and then also just like talking with other black women in my life about like how to explain certain hairstyles because um, I don't also have an extensive, extensive knowledge of black hairstyles myself. Um, so, so yeah, things like that, but definitely embodying that like silencing that Kata is feeling sometimes. Um, was part of portraying that in the novel. A far more extensive knowledge of black hair care than I did 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Although I was preparing for, for my son because I, I figured when we had a child there, there might be some hair issues and he's blonde. Yeah. <laughs> he's got right. my hair. So. And, there's, and there's, I'm forgetting the name of the organization, but there's actually an organization in Chicago um, that specifically works with adoptive families and does hair care workshops and tutorials and um, and is specifically marketed towards adoptive families uh, with black children. Um, and they just have like a little short film that came out about them. Um, if I remember it, I will send you the name for maybe notes. But yeah, um, there's a lot. Like I said, there are a lot more resources and a lot more. I think Internet has done a lot for sort of communities that are raising children um, of color. There's a lot more. Um, and that, and I think in turn, there's also hopefully a lot more visibility of adult adoptees who are talking about their like various nuanced perspectives growing up. 
Well, there is now. Middle Grade Ninja podcast goes out everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so mission accomplished. That was a, such a thoughtful answer. I appreciate it. I, I like that. Now, of course, I got to follow it up with a dumb question. No, no. Uh, Mariama J. Lockington, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? Um, I have never seen a flying saucer, but I absolutely believe in them. Um, and maybe one day I will. But yeah, I definitely believe that there is uh, life out there that is not human um, and that I might see one one day. We are quickly running out of time. I'm going to have to go get my buddy off the bus. Um, but I do want to ask you about school visits because who better uh, than a professional educator who... Uh, so, yeah, that's my question. What, what are the tips for a successful visit uh, and how are the best ways to get those set up? Oh, well, I so I'm still... Even though I've worked with young people in schools, um, the author school visit is sort of new to me, but my favorite thing that I've gotten to do as being an author, um, I think the tips for setting them up um, is one, if you are an author, it's just making sure that you have a school visit menu, either on your website or just, you know, an idea of what you can offer when a school reaches out to you saying they'd like a school visit. So um, I did some research um, just from other authors that I know about sort of um, what they charge if they charge for school visits or how many school visits they do that are free versus charge, you know, just sort of the business of it. And then um, putting together just a quick menu. So um, sometimes school visits are an assembly and you're talking to 150 plus students at a time. And so in those cases, you want to have like a PowerPoint and it's it's you want it at lecture sounds bad because that sounds boring, but basically in a setting like that, the kids want to hear from you. So they want to hear a little bit about you. If you have cute animal photos, that's always good to just like insert in there, embarrassing photos of you as a kid. Um, and then um, almost just book talking your book if they haven't read it. Um, what are the things that would hook students into your story? Um, so I play music in my school visit. Um, I talk about friendship. Um, we do talk about adoption, but we talk about some big themes and then we get a little bit smaller in context. And then if it's a school visit where you're going into a classroom and you get to talk to like 15 to 30 kids at a time, um, you could throw in some type of an activity or a writing workshop or a writing prompt or something that is a little bit more engaging if you have um, that opportunity with a smaller group. But you kind of have to tailor it to what to what the thing is. So I have a menu of like, here are some workshops that I can offer that are like writing and engaging. Here are two like book talks or le lecture style presentations that I can do for a bigger audience. And then I always have something that's like, if you, um, you know, if you have a specific event or something in mind, you can work with me and we can come up with a school visit that better fits your needs. Um, and then I would just say, leave more time for questions than you think you need. Um, I always underestimate how many wonderful questions young people have. And so I feel like I end up cutting my presentation off because I wanna to get to their questions because they ask really unique um, and really wonderful questions from everything about your book to the writing process, um, to your life, if you're also writing um, from experience as well. What's been your favorite uh, reaction either to something you've said at a school visit or to your book so far? Um, okay, so I this story um, is really important to me because so when authors don't have usually a lot of control over the cover of the book, um, I was very fortunate to get a cover that I love. Um, uh, the artwork is done by a woman named Jamea Richmond Edwards. Um, she's phenomenal. Um, she's a phenomenal artist. Um, but 
I really, really did want there to be a black girl on the cover. Um, so I wanted her to be, you know, front and center. Um, and that's what I got. But basically, I was in Colorado visiting my goddaughter, who is, was eight at the time, um, when the email came through with sort of like, we've put together the cover, what do you think? And I looked at it, I loved it. And then uh, my goddaughter was one of the first young people to see the cover, and I showed it to her. And her first reaction was just that her face lit up. And she just said, that looks like a real black girl. Um, and that for me was like, all right, well, I love the cover. I have no <laughs> no feedback for it because like the target demographic for this book saw it and was like, oh, that's a book for me. And that looks like a real black girl. Um, so that's, that was, that's remains one of my favorite reactions um, to the, to the cover itself. Um, and then I think my other my other really quick one was I went and I did a school visit in DC and it was a fifth grade classroom and it was mixed genders. And I got in there and the students were so excited um, and there, and they were reading it. They hadn't finished reading it. So they were all at various different points in the book. And this young boy tapped me on the shoulder and he was just like, I just want to let you know that I don't really like to read, but I'm on page 127. And he like opened it and pointed to it of your book. <laughs> Um, and he was like, I just want you to know. And he was really excited about it. Um, and so that's, that was also one of my favorite reactions was just like, I just want to let you know that I'm on this page. I really like your book and I'm not a big reader. Um, and that was really validating. Um, and from a young man too, because, um, the book, you know, says for black girls like me, I think there's a lot that students of all genders can get out of this book. Um, but I do know sometimes, you know, people self-select or say, oh, that's a girl book and don't want to read it. No such thing as a girl book or a boy book, but um, yeah, so that was an affirming, validating moment of, of just engaging a young reader. That is adorable and swells my heart on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what have you got coming up next? Um, coming up next, I'm, uh, as you speak, uh, working on my second book, which will come out in 2021. Um, it is right now called In the Key of Us, and it is middle grade, uh, about two um, young black women who go to a music camp and it is a romance. So it is going to be a romance uh, for middle grade. Um, and I am excited to tackle that and it'll be out in 2021. And um, other than that, I am doing school visits when I'm asked to uh, Skype and school visits, um, uh, have some festivals coming up in 2020. Um, but otherwise, just trying to work on this book so that it will be out in the world for the next time. People who want to get in touch with you to get you booked for a school visit now that they've heard uh, how amazingly insightful you are. Though, oh, my God, we, we have to get Mariama to come uh, and talk to us. How can they reach out to you? Where can they find you? Yeah, so um, you can reach out to me on my website, which is for blackgirlslikeme.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Mari Locke, um, on Instagram at for Black Girls Like Me. Um, and I'm really responsive on all those platforms. In addition, there's a, you can find my email on for blackgirlslikeme.com. Um, and I have an entire menu of school visits, um, and a contact page that you can get in touch with me there. Last question. So all, all the pressure in the world, 50th episode, last question. Here we go. Um, what is, if there was one or two bits of advice you could give to young you when you were starting to write, uh, or just post um, uh, uh, slam poetry champion uh, you when you when you're venturing into middle grade um, 
what advice would you go back and give yourself that would maybe have made all the difference and might make some difference for writers listening now? Oh boy. Um, I mean, one, I mean, one piece of advice that I think I would give myself and just any young writer is that, um, and I feel like this is not new or original, but is to, um, to read, 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 um, and read widely. Um, and then also not be afraid, especially when you're young to mimic, right? Like I think we learn um, so much about writing or about storytelling from writers that we admire. So it's okay if you don't necessarily know what your voice is yet. If you haven't found your voice, it is okay um, to start out by like, for me, it was Saul Williams. So I wrote a poem in the style of Saul Williams that was terrible, but I, you know, emulated that style um, and that, that, push me forward in finding my own voice and the things that I wanted to write about. Um, and also just to remember that we tell stories every single day. And so um, I know that some people, some young people are intimidated by like writing on the page, but if we just listen to the way we talk to each other. So another piece of advice I have for young, for young writers is um, honestly, to go out into the world and ear hustle, which is basically to eavesdrop. Don't spy on people, but just like go out into the world, go out at research, recess and listen to the way people are talking to each other. Get snippets of conversation um, and catalog those because those can be really good um, sparks for either stories or for dialogue when you're writing dialogue. And that's, um, you know, something that I I wish um, maybe I told myself when I was younger, but just how much like part of writing is also being in the world, right? Like part of writing is, yeah, you have to sit down and write, but also you have to live your life and meet new people and experience new things in order um, to become a more rounded person um, and maybe to empathize with, with other people. So put yourself in situations that maybe are new or uncomfortable or challenging, and that's also good for writing. That is an excellent note to end on. Uh, Steve Dotting has 50 episodes. We did it. Let's see yeah. if we can get another 50. Uh, as always, keep up with the show and what we've got going on at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, Mariama, this was just an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for, for making the time to come here and share all this wonderful, insightful information with us today. Thank you so much. I feel like we could have talked for much longer. So this Oh, is I know we could have. So when uh, the next book comes out, <laughs> hook me up with an arc and let's do it again. Yes. Sounds good. I have been asking all of our guests to sign us off with a very specific, totally justifies the name of the show sign-off phrase. Uh, and that sign-off phrase is the extremely ninja-like, hi-ya, and what have you. Will you sign us off? Absolutely. Hi-ya, and what have you. Mm -hmm.